to read this evening from uh, Jonah, just the end of chapter 1. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find this on page uh, 927. Just by way of a historical reference point uh, from the reading that was uh, read to us earlier from uh, from 2 Kings, uh, 50 or 70 years before uh, Assyria came and took Israel captive, Jonah had been sent by God from Israel to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, uh, to preach a message of both judgment and hope. Um, the last time we looked at Jonah chapter 1, we indicated a number of reasons as to why Jonah would not have been uh, too happy to take uh, such a message. I want to begin a reading uh, breaking into the end of chapter 1, uh, reading from verse 15. It has become clear to all on board uh, the cruise ship that uh, Jonah had taken uh, for his Mediterranean summer holiday, uh, that the storm that was causing uh, so much distress, uh, the source of that was really Jonah. Uh, He identifies himself in that way and asks the sailors to throw him uh, into the sea, and that would solve Uh, their problems. Verse 15 of chapter 1, then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days And three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, I wonder if you noticed that our Bible reading began and ended with two very, very different pictures. In the first, Jonah's defiant disobedience finds expression, I'd rather drown in the sea than take a message of hope to the people of Nineveh. And in the second, we have a subdued and a humbled Jonah setting out to preach a message, the message God gave him to the people of Nineveh. And the question I want to ask is this, what is it that causes this quite remarkable transformation from picture number one of defiance to picture number two of humble obedience? And the answer is found in the contents of chapter 2, where we find uh, what may uh, have been Jonah's waterproof spiritual journal, uh, a prayer that helps us to access his spiritual journey and uh, development. Remember, God had said to Jonah, go preach in Nineveh. Jonah had handed in his notice, left no forwarding address, and taken a Mediterranean cruise. Then along came the discipline of God's storm, God, God's alarm clock to rouse Jonah to his uh, spiritual duty. And while Jonah was awakened to the seriousness of his rebellion by the storm, it failed nevertheless to work repentance uh, into his heart. And it is, you see, possible to be spiritually awakened without being spiritually restored. Jonah's solution had been to end it all. Drowning appeared to him to be a more attractive option than obedience. And that kind of stubbornness seems to us quite incredulous until perhaps we gaze into our own hearts. Have we never dug our heels in and tried to resist the will of God for our lives? If so, then let's seek to benefit from the passage before us, which deals, uh, first of all, with Jonah's uh, great awakening. Uh, secondly, Jonah's penitence. Thirdly, Jonah's reconsecration. And then finally, uh, we'll have a look at God's response uh, to all of that. Well then, Jonah's great awakening. Jonah needed to be gripped by a very significant truth, and it was this, God is against you. Not indifferent towards you, 
but God is against you. And profoundly disturbing as that truth was, it has a major part to play in this rebel prophet's recovery. Initially, Jonah describes his physical condition, uh, and I'm sure that was seen to be his most pressing danger. Look at the language of the drowning man whose plight must have seemed like a prolonged torture chamber as he was swallowed by this great fish in verse 2 following, the drowning, the swallowing. Picture him, if you will, as an unwilling prisoner in an underwater roller coaster, soaked by the digestive juices of the great, the great fish swilling about in its stomach, catching his breath in air fouled by decomposing organic matter. Uh, this... Uh, this wasn't one of these joyrides that all the youngsters are keen uh, to go and take part in. You don't go there for the weekend. Far from it. And you may well ask, well, was his danger at this juncture not very real? And the answer is yes, it was. This was a real danger. But then the spiritually awakened Jonah begins to read the situation very, very differently. A far greater danger suddenly grips his mind. Verse 4, I have been banished from your sight. Now remember, this is the man who in chapter 1 verse 3 set out to flee from the presence of the Lord. I want to get away from God. And now this man grasps the awful significance of such a separation. It's as though the light has been switched on, enabling him to see the terrifying consequences of his rebellion. I'm separated from God, and I need to get back. I really, really need to get back. And that ought always to be the priority of the spiritually awakened man. His immediate concern is not with his physical condition, but with his spiritual condition. It's only then that his relationship with God becomes the greatest priority of his life. Everything else is put on hold. He is consumed with only one thought. I need to get right with God. Let me try and illustrate that. Uh, do you recall Saul's priority after he had been spiritually awakened on the road to Damascus? He had this encounter with the risen Christ, you will remember an encounter that left him physically blind. And on arrival in Damascus, did he say, uh, can anyone give me directions to the ophthalmology department of the Royal Infirmary, for I am blind and I want to see? No. He spent three days 
and nights fasting and praying, crying out to God. His physical condition was inconsequential to him. What was important was his relationship with the God he thought he had been serving. This spiritually awakened man saw that his great priority was to get right with God. Jonah, who was to be instrumental in the greatest spiritual awakening that is recorded in Scripture, discovered that he himself had been spiritually awakened by God, who is the author of all spiritual awakenings. Now, there is, I believe, tremendous pastoral encouragement here for those who find themselves overwhelmed to the point of distraction by a sense of their sin and disobedience. God is at work. This spiritual awakening is not a self-induced state, nor is it one that is generated in any way by the manipulation of man, but it is an evidence of the internal activity of the Spirit of God in the soul of a man or a woman. Jonah, spiritually awakened, God taking the first step in the restoration process of his servant. But secondly, think of Jonah's penitence. Not only did our prodigal prophet experience this great spiritual awakening that resulted in a penitent heart, like another prodigal who came to his senses in a pigsty, Jonah saw the folly of his wayward behavior. Humbled and broken in spirit, he lowers that rebel flag. He repents of his disobedience. Now, there are a number who would disagree with that. They argue there is no evidence at all of repentance in chapter 2. Indeed, the word repentance doesn't appear in the text, you will notice. Uh, and added to that, think of the prophet's sulky behavior in chapter 4. That surely, certainly on the surface, seems to argue against a genuine repentance. And yet I want to suggest to you that a genuine repentance does indeed take place. I think John Bunyan's comments here are helpful. He writes, the difference between true and false repentance lies in this. The man who truly repents cries out against his heart. The man who truly repents cries out against his heart. Now, that is implicit in what Jonah is doing here in chapter 2. He is crying out against his heart. His heart that had deceived him, his heart that had sent him uh, in a collision course with God. His greatest longing, you'll notice, 
is to have his communion with God restored. The penitent longs passionately for God's presence. Oh, to have that again, the presence of the living God. And here is a man who has no appetite for anything else. No appetite for anything else. Jonah's change in direction is further evidenced in his return to God's Word. Previously, you'll remember in chapter 1, he'd stopped his ears to the Word of God. Go to Nineveh. I'm, I'm not hearing this. I'm not hearing this. The spiritual rebel cannot bear to have his conscience stirred by the Word. And so he closes his ears he actually switches off while the sermon is being preached. Not for me. No, thank you. Uh, doesn't switch completely off, however. He refused, refuses to apply it to his own life, but that person sitting over there, this is exactly what they need to hear. <laughs> this message is for them. It's for him. It's for her. But let such a rebel experience a spiritual awakening. And God's word begins to hold a fresh, a new attractiveness. Now, you may well ask, does Jonah really have such an appetite? Never mind access here to God's word, waterproof or otherwise. How can we say he's a fresh hunger for God's word? Let me ask those of you who are computer savvy uh, to copy Jonah chapter 2 from your digital Bibles and paste them, uh, the words, somewhere in the Psalms. And then ask a Christian friend to read through the Psalms. Would he easily be able to track down the intruder Psalm? I would suggest he would not. Why is that? Because the language of Jonah chapter 2 is very Psalm-like. You could hide Jonah chapter 2 in the Psalms and no one would spot it. Uh, unless, of course, they had a free church background and knew all of the Psalms intimately. But normally, no one would spot it. But Jonah 2 just resonates with the language of the Psalms. Uh, how do we explain that? Let me suggest that Jonah, in his awakened state, in the, in the belly of the great fish, has begun to meditate upon the Psalms. Just as it was said of Bunyan that if you pricked his skin, you would discover that his blood was bibline, because Scripture so clearly infused his thought, so too Jonah, in his awakened state, is accessing his memory banks, and the Psalms are flooding in and shaping his thinking and his, and his expression. He's luxuriating in his knowledge of God's Word. Now, there's a very significant and noticeable result which invariably follows from such feasting. 
Faith is stimulated and hope is quickened. Look at verse 4. Yet, he says, I will look again towards your holy temple. Verse 6, but you brought my life up from the pit. Verse 9, but I, I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Now, where was Jonah when he made these pronouncements? Pronouncements of hope and assurance. Where was he? He was in a dark tomb, struggling for breath. And it's in that dark setting that this remarkable hope emerges. He's not whistling in the dark. He is feasting upon the living Word of God. And faith feeds on the revealed character of God and on his covenant promises. And Jonah dares to believe that the God who restored the psalmist could do precisely the same for him. And this insatiable hunger for and purposeful application of God's word is a telling characteristic of those who have been spiritually awakened and have turned to serve God. Thirdly, notice Jonah's reconsecration. Jonah's experience now moves beyond spiritual awakening and repentance towards this renewed consecration. This is the significance of verse 9. I have vowed and I will make good. Was he thinking of his ordination vow? Did the Old Testament prophets have ordination vows? Or was he thinking of a vow made earlier in, in the belly of this great fish? Uh, where it was made is uh, not terribly significant. The fact that he had vowed to God is the significant thing to lay hold of. Certainly many like Jonah, I'm sure, can look back on a day when they told God that he was the supreme love of their life. Nothing to compare with you, Lord. You are the supreme love of my life life. Serving you is my greatest delight. And then either dramatically, as in Jonah's case, or by a gradual erosion, that commitment evaporates. Not a few Christians have been there. Well, genuine repentance does lead, should lead to a reconsecration. And that involves a grand eviction, a radical expulsion of every rival for our heart commitment. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that an idol is anything that displaces the heart allegiance that truly belongs to God. And the idols of pride and prejudice and selfish ambition had all had some part to play in Jonah's heart and disobedience. So he's saying, 
I must let go of these rivals that have robbed God of his rightful place. I cannot cling to my idols and expect to hold out my hand and experience the grace of God in my life. In practice, that's precisely what so many Christians seek to do. God's storms awaken them to the reality of the rebellion. They grasp their spiritual bankruptcy. They might even sing with the hymn writer, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? They may make a show of surrendering to God, but they continue to cling to the very things that have severed their communion with God in the first place. The idol in question will, of course, vary from person to person. It can be attitudes, relationships, ambition, career, possessions. The list is absolutely endless. But enjoyment of God's blessing is impossible without letting go of our idols. And the hymn writer clearly grasped that, for he continued to write, the dearest idol... I have known. Number one idol, the thing that has captured my heart's affection, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne. I realize that it's in the wrong place. Help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Now, I want to suggest it's possible to be spiritually awakened and taste a measure of the gift of repentance. But if that doesn't lead to a fresh consecration, a letting go of the things that have estranged us from God, then in Jonah's sobering judgment, we forfeit the grace of God. Those are scary words. We forfeit the grace of God. We cannot remain an idle sanctuary and at the same time entertain any fond expectation of God's grace. Idols and grace are like oil and water. They are incompatible. They don't mix. When Chalmers spoke of the expulsive power of a new affection. He was talking primarily of the fruit of conversion. But it can equally apply to the repentant, spiritually awakened man or woman and their renewed determination to be rid of all that would cloud their enjoyment of God. A God who has lavished his love and his mercy and his grace upon us. The expulsive power of our affection for Christ. I suspect many of us can identify at some level with Jonah's experience. 
if God's storms have not roused us to our spiritual responsibilities, then his classroom, in whatever form it has taken, can achieve that goal. And a genuine repentance restores our fellowship with him, and that's wonderful. But this may often leave us emotionally and psychologically flat. Consciousness of past failure can persuade us, though in truth it's often Satan who does the persuading, it can persuade us that God has left us to rust on the spiritual scrap heap. You're finished. It's over. You're a Christian has been. And it's then, I believe, we need the encouragement of chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Look carefully at how God treats his penitent child who's just been vomited up onto the seashore. But first, ask, what would you have done in God's place? How would you have treated the man who has willfully sought to frustrate God's plans? Would you pension him off? Would you maybe give him a desk job filing the other prophet's sermons? He could do that. No problem there. What did God do? He said, Jonah, I still have important work waiting for you to do in Nineveh. You failed the first time, but again I say, go to Nineveh. Oh, you ask, can God really, can he really trust people to serve him in a situation where they have shown themselves to be such abysmal failures? Is, is God as big-hearted? Is he as wonderfully kind as that? Oh, yes. It's an overwhelming truth. And many find it hard to believe that God's grace can possibly go beyond forgiveness to restoration. But think of others who at some stage have failed God. Abraham, Moses, Peter, all of these men went on to live useful, fruitful lives. They discovered a glorious and incontrovertible truth. God recommissions failures. And he takes great delight to say to someone who has failed, let me, let me pick you up. Uh, we're going to do this together. We're going to do this together. The Word of God came to Jonah a second time. I wonder if you can begin to grasp the wonderful therapy of that for the penitent child of God who could so easily have drowned in a sea of self-recrimination. God's grace 
transcends our grievous failures. It also transcends our most optimistic expectations. Remember in Luke 15, when, when the, the prodigal returned home, his greatest expectation is way up there. The thing that, that he really looked forward to the possibility of was being given the job of a kitchen skivvy. Oh, oh, to get that would be great. That was his greatest expectation. Well, after all, he'd willfully and callously broken his father's heart. But the father was intent on a complete restoration. Bring the robe, the ring, the sandals. Prepare the banquet for the son of mine who was dead and is now alive. The boy was allowed to become all he should have been in the first place. And this is how God so often meets with genuine repentance. He allows us to become all that we should have been in the first place. Isn't that just remarkable? You see, the truth that lies at the very heart of our gospel, which is grounded in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, is that Jesus laid down his life for a people whose sin had vandalized and distorted the image of God, the crown of creation, the exhibition piece of God's glory, the ruined masterpiece was restored by none other than the one who created it. And that cost God. It cost him dearly. It cost the death of his son to allow us to become all that we should have been in the first place. Put it this way, Christ's death ensures that God gets his picture back. Athanasius had a lot to say about that. Christ coming to die, to redeem, in order to give God his picture back. Who among us hasn't fallen into disobedience, closed our ears to the word of God, only to find that God has graciously pursued us and shaped circumstances to sorely chasten us, how, how do we respond to that? I think Jonah's journal in chapter 2 uh, provides us with a helpful blueprint, crying to God to awaken us to the danger of being separated from Him and the sunshine of His smile urging our hearts to, to cry out against us as we seek to repent of the sin and the disobedience in our lives. Reconsecrating our lives to God and dependent upon His grace, vow to serve Him more faithfully. Renewing our trust in Christ to give God His picture back 
as, as we are conformed daily to his likeness. For he alone can ensure that we become all that we should be. May God use his word to humble our hearts, quicken our hope, animate our worship. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which it accesses our hearts, revealing our need, our shortcoming, our sin, our disobedience, but not crushing us, pointing us to a God who is gracious and merciful, a God who is eager to restore and to recommission, a God who answers far beyond our most optimistic hopes and expectations, a God who delights through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit applying that to our lives in order that you may get your picture back and that we become all that you intend us to be. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.